Section 7 of the Hohenzollerns in America by Stephen Lee Cock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. With the Bolsheviks in Berlin, Part 1. Two years ago, as my readers will remember, but of course they don't, I made a secret visit to Germany during the height of the war. It was obviously quite impossible at that time to disclose the means whereby I made my way across the frontier. I therefore adopted the familiar literary device of professing to have been transported to Germany in a dream. In that state I was supposed to be conducted about the country by my friend Count Bub von Bubenstein, whom I had known years before as a waiter in Toronto, to see the Germany from within, and to report upon it to the Allied press. What I wrote attracted some attention, so the German government, feeling perhaps that the prestige of their own spy system was at stake, published a white paper, or a green paper, I forget which, in denial of all my adventures and disclosures. In this they proved, one, that all entry into Germany by dreams had been expressly forbidden of the high general command, two, that astral bodies were prohibited, and three, that nobody else but the Kaiser was allowed to have visions. They claimed, therefore, one, that my article was a fabrication, and two, that for all they knew it was humorous. There the matter ended until it can be taken up at the general peace table. But as soon as I heard that the People's Revolution had taken place in Berlin, I determined to make a second visit. This time I had no difficulty about the frontier whatever. I simply put on the costume of a British admiral and walked in. Three cheers for the British Navy!' said the first official whom I met. He threw his hat in the air, and the peasants standing about raised a cheer. It was my first view of the marvellous adaptability of this great people. I noticed that many of them were wearing little buttons with pictures of Jellicoe and Beatty. At my own request I was conducted at once to the nearest railway station. "'So your excellency wishes to go to Berlin?' said the station-master. "'Yes,' I replied, "'I want to see something of the people's revolution.' The station-master looked at his watch. "'That revolution is over,' he said. "'Too bad!' I exclaimed. "'Not at all. A much better one is in progress. Quite the best revolution that we have had. It is called, Johann, hand me that proclamation of yesterday. The Workmen and Soldiers' Revolution.' "'What's it about?' I asked. "'The basis of it,' said the station-master, "'or what we Germans call the fundamental ground foundation, "'is universal love. "'They hanged all the leaders of the old revolution yesterday.' "'When can I get a train?' I inquired. "'Your Excellency shall have a special train at once, sir,' "'he continued with a sudden burst of feeling, "'while a tear swelled in his eye.' The sight of your uniform calls forth all our gratitude. My three sons enlisted in our German navy. For four years they have been at Kiel, comfortably fed, playing dominoes. They are now at home all safe and happy. Had your brave navy relaxed its vigilance for a moment, those boys might have had to go out on the sea, a thing they had never done. Please God, concluded the old man, removing his hat a moment, no German sailor will now ever have to go to sea. I pass over my journey to Berlin. 
Interesting and varied as were the scenes through which I passed, they gave me but little light upon the true situation of the country. Indeed I may say without exaggeration that they gave me as little, or even more so, as the press reports of our talented newspaper correspondents. The food situation seemed particularly perplexing. A well-to-do merchant from Bremen, who travelled for some distance in my train, assured me that there was plenty of food in Germany, except, of course, for the poor. Distress, he said, was confined entirely to these. Similarly, a Prussian gentleman who looked very like a soldier, but who assured me with some heat that he was a commercial traveller, told me the same thing. There were no cases of starvation, he said, except among the very poor. The aspect of the people, too, at the stations and in the towns we passed, puzzled me. There were no uniforms, no soldiers. But I was amazed at the number of commercial travellers, Lutheran ministers, photographers, and so forth, and the odd resemblance they presented, in spite of their innocent costumes, to the arrogant and ubiquitous military officers whom I had observed on my former visit. But I was too anxious to reach Berlin to pay much attention to the details of my journey. Even when I had at last reached the capital, I arrived as I had feared, too late. "'Your Excellency,' said a courteous official at the railway station, to whom my naval uniform acted as a sufficient passport, "'the revolution of which you speak is over. Its leaders were arrested yesterday.' but you shall not be disappointed. There is a better one. It is called the Comrades' Revolution of the Bolsheviks. The chief executive was installed yesterday. Would it be possible for me to see him? I asked. Nothing simpler, Excellency, he continued, as a tear rose in his eye. My four sons— I know, I said, your four sons are in the German navy. It is enough. Can you take me to the leader? I can and will, said the official. He is sitting now in the free palace of all the German people, once usurped by the Hohenzollern tyrant. The doors are guarded by machine guns, but I can take you direct from here through a back way. Come. We passed out from the station, across a street, and through a maze of little stairways and passages into the heart of the great building that had been the offices of the imperial government. Enter this room, do not knock, said my guide. Good-bye. In another moment I found myself face to face with the chief comrade of the Bolsheviks. He gave a sudden start as he looked at me, but instantly collected himself. He was sitting with his big boots up on the mahogany desk, a cigar at an edgeways angle in his mouth. His hair under his sheepskin cap was shaggy, and his beard stubbly and unshaven. His dress was slovenly, and there was a big knife in his belt. A revolver lay on the desk beside him. I had never seen a Bolshevik before, but I knew at sight that he must be one. "'You say you were here in Berlin once before?' he questioned, and he added before I had time to answer, "'When you speak, don't call me Excellency or Sereneness or anything of that sort. Just call me brother or comrade. This is the era of freedom.' You're as good as I am, or nearly. Thank you, I said. Don't be so damn polite, he snarled. No good comrade ever says thank you. So you were here in Berlin before? Yes, I answered. 
I was here writing up Germany from within, in the middle of the war. The war, the war, he murmured, in a sort of wail or whine. Take notice, comrade, that I weep when I speak of it. If you write anything about me, be sure to say that I cried when the war was mentioned. We Germans have been so misjudged. When I think of the devastation of France and Belgium, I weep. He drew a greasy red handkerchief from his pocket and began to sob. To think of the loss of all those English merchant ships. Oh, you needn't worry, I said. It's all going to be paid for. Oh, I hope so, I do hope so, said the Bolshevik chief. What a regret it is to us Germans to think that unfortunately we are not able to help pay for it but you English, you are so generous, how much we have admired your noble hearts, so kind, so generous to the vanquished. His voice had subsided into a sort of whine. But at this moment there was a loud knocking at the door. The Bolshevik hastily wiped his tears from his face and put away his handkerchief. How do I look? he said anxiously. Not humane, I hope? Not soft? Oh, no, I said quite tough. That's good, he answered, that's good, but am I tough enough? He hastily shoved his hands through his hair. Quick, he said, hand me that piece of chewing tobacco. Now then, come in. The door swung open. A man in a costume much like the leader's swaggered into the room. He had a bundle of papers in his hands, and seemed to be some sort of military secretary. Ha, comrade, he said with easy familiarity, here are the death warrants. Death warrants, said the Bolshevik, of the leaders of the late revolution? Excellent, and a good bundle of them, one moment while I sign them. He began rapidly signing the warrants, one after the other. Comrade, said the secretary in a surly tone, you are not chewing tobacco. Yes, I am, yes, I am said the leader, or at least I was just going to. He bit a huge piece out of his plug with what seemed to me an evident distaste, and began to chew furiously. It is well, said the other. Remember, comrade, that you are watched. It was reported last night to the executive committee of the Circle of the Brothers that you chewed no tobacco all day yesterday. Be warned, comrade, this is a free and independent republic." We will stand for no aristocratic nonsense. But whom have you here? he added, breaking off in his speech, as if he noticed me for the first time. What dog is this? Hush, said the leader. He is a representative of the foreign press, a newspaper reporter. Your pardon, said the secretary. I took you by your dress for a prince, a representative of the great and enlightened press of the Allies, I presume. How deeply we admire in Germany the press of England. Let me kiss you. Oh, don't trouble, I said. It's not worth while. Say, at least, when you write in your paper, that I offered to kiss you, will you not? Meantime, the leader had finished signing the papers. The secretary took them and swung on his heels with something between a military bow and a drunken swagger. Remember, comrade he said in a threatening tone as he passed out, You are watched. The Bolshevik leader looked after him with something of a shudder. Excuse me a moment, he said, while I go and get rid of this tobacco. 
he got up from his chair and walked away towards the door of an inner room. As he did so, there struck me something strangely familiar in his gait and figure. Conceal it as he might, there was still the stiff wooden movement of a Prussian general beneath his assumed swagger. The poise of his head still seemed to suggest the pointed helmet of the Prussian. I could without effort imagine a military cloak about his shoulders instead of his Bolshevik sheepskin. Then, all in a moment, as he re-entered the room, I recalled exactly who he was. "'My friend,' I said, reaching out my hand, "'pardon me for not knowing you at once. I recognize you now.' "'Hush,' said the Bolshevik. "'Don't speak. I never saw you in my life.' "'Nonsense,' I said. "'I knew you years ago in Canada when you were disguised as a waiter.' and you it was who conducted me through Germany two years ago, when I made my war visit. You are no more a Bolshevik than I am. You are General Count Bub von Bubenstein. The general sank down in his chair, his face pale beneath its plaster of rouge. Hush, he said, if they learn it, it is death. My dear Bub, I said, not a word shall pass my lips. The general grasped my hand. The true spirit, he said, the true English comradeship, how deeply we admire it in Germany. I am sure you do, I answered. But tell me, what is the meaning of all this? Why are you a Bolshevik? We all are, said the count, dropping his assumed rough voice and speaking in a tone of quiet melancholy. It's the only thing to be. But come, he added, getting up from his chair, I took you once through Berlin in wartime. Let me take you out again and show you Berlin under the Bolsheviks. I shall be only too happy, I said. I shall leave my pistols and knives here, said Bubenstein, and if you will excuse me, I shall change my costume a little. To appear as I am would excite too much enthusiasm. I shall walk out with you in the simple costume of a gentleman. It's a risky thing to do in Berlin, but I'll chance it. The Count retired, and presently returned, dressed in the quiet bell-shaped purple coat, the simple scarlet tie, the pea-green hat, and the white spats that marked the German gentleman all the world over. "'Bless me, Count,' I said, "'you look just like Bernstorff.' "'Hush,' said the Count, "'don't mention him. He's here in Berlin.' "'What's he doing?' I asked. "'He's a Bolshevik, one of our leaders.' He's just been elected president of the Scavengers' Union. They say he's the very man for it. But come along, and by the way, when we get into the street, talk English and only English. There's getting to be a prejudice here against German. We passed out of the door and through the spacious corridors and down the stairways of the great building. All about were groups of ferocious-looking men, dressed like stage Russians, all chewing tobacco and redolent of alcohol. "'Who are all these people?' I said to the Count in a low voice. "'Bolsheviks,' he whispered. "'At least they aren't really. You see that group in the corner?' "'The ones with the long knives,' I said. "'Yes, they are, or at least they were, the orchestra of the Berlin Opera.' They are now the Bolshevik Music Commission. They are here this morning to see about getting their second violinist hanged. Why not the first? I asked. They hanged him yesterday. Both cases are quite clear. 
the men undoubtedly favored the war one at least of them openly spoke in disparagement of president wilson but come along let me show you our new city end of section seven